Good evening, TNL. Good to be with you tonight. I'm Nathan, your TNL. It's good to have this interaction. Uh, I get to lead our sister church, your sister church, the Sacred Grace Inglewood meets here on Sunday nights. It's really good to be with you tonight. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I'm going to jump right in here. We're going to be talking tonight about Christians and politics. Um, we're not going to solve this per se. That's not really the point of this series, but rather to respond to some of the questions that you have submitted. It's very timely. Obviously, there's a lot of things happening political um, in nature right now. So yesterday, there was sort of a caucus in Iowa. Um, the State of the Union, I think, is actually starting right now. The president who's giving that State of the Union was impeached by the House and is potentially being acquitted by the Senate tomorrow. Um, Christians played a major role in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, Christians continue to play a major role in the voice for particular political issues and particular political parties. Uh, so it matters that we as Christians talk about this sort of thing. Uh, what I want to do tonight is what I've been doing throughout this series at our church. I'm going to answer three questions or have three categories for how I go about this. First, I want to talk about what. I want to talk about what is the uh, spectrum of belief on this particular topic. Um, what is the current cultural moment, if you will, both at large and within Christians, uh, with, for Christians specifically. Um, second thing I want to do is talk about why. Why does this matter to Christians? What's the biblical precedent for this? Is there anything that we can take from the Bible or take from Christian tradition or take from theology to understand this issue better? And then third, I want to talk about how? How do we develop postures and practices that help us approach this in a more Christianly way? That's the framework that I'm going to follow tonight. So first, I want to talk about our current cultural moment um, in politics in the United States. This is no surprise to you. This is something that you know, but it is becoming increasingly polarized. On one side, we have um, Republican, uh, traditional, uh, conservative values. And on the other side, increasingly far away from that side, is a progressive liberal Democrat perspective. And as those two sides are moving farther and farther away from each other, we are losing this ground right here in the middle. As two sides become more and more polarized, we have less ground in the middle. There's less space for us. There's less for us to claim here. We are incapable of holding nuance in any topics, especially politics. We feel pressure to either agree completely or disagree completely with a particular party, and not only just that party, but the person who's in leadership over that party, which is insane. I don't agree with my wife like 30% of the time. So how am I going to agree with not only a party, but a particular person all of the time about everything? But we're losing ground in the middle where I can take a little bit from one side that I agree with, or take a little bit from another side that I agree with. We have to be all in one way or another. What is the current cultural moment for Christians in America? Uh, well, more than 80% of white evangelicals voted for Republican or voted Republican in the 2016 presidential election. And most polls show that, show that that group hasn't changed a whole lot or fluctuated much on that particular issue. Moreover, it is not uncommon for Christians in America to conflate their faith with the Republican Party specifically. It is not uncommon for Christians to conflate their faith with the Republican Party. It is also true for other groups that it is not uncommon for them to conflate their faith with, let's say, the Democratic Party or a more libertarian perspective. Okay? This, I'm just going to use Christians specifically because that's what I told you that I was going to talk about tonight. Now, I'm going to use an example here to show the tie that binds the Christians to the Republican Party, one of the ties that bind. I'm going to talk about abortion for a minute. I'm doing that primarily because now I have your attention, and also because I think that it is one of the strongest ties that binds Christians to the Republican Party. It might surprise you to learn that abortion was not always a major issue for Christians. It became a major issue for Christians, and it was in the recent past that that happened. It was a strategic effort by Republican leaders to unify white evangelicals around the Republican Party. 
This doesn't mean that it is not an extremely important issue. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have opinions about it and thoughts about it and vote about it. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. I'm simply showing that how it is a tie that binds Christians and republicanism together. So here's a quick brief history. It wasn't until the late 70s and early 80s that even the most conservative evangelicals began to beat the pro-life drum. Okay, uh, Rund Abdel Fada, an NPR correspondent, recently said on a podcast: the Southern Baptist Convention recently passed, or sorry, actually passed resolutions in 1971, 1974, and 1976 after Roe v. Wade, affirming the idea that women should have access to abortion for a variety of reasons, and the government should play a limited role in that matter. The experts we talked to said the white evangelicals at that time saw abortion as a largely Catholic issue. The Southern Baptist Convention is widely known as one of the most conservative arms of Christian evangelicalism. So this is a really uh, like bold statement, a really uh, interesting thing to learn about them. Evangelicals were not really that interested in the topic. They weren't talking about the topic, topic in the 70s, and it wasn't really until the 80s it became important to them. W.A. Criswell, a pastor of the largest SBC church in 1971, um, said this, I've always felt that it was after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother, that it became an individual person. It was always therefore, it always therefore seemed to me that that was the best, that what was best for the mother and for her future should be allowed. Again, from an extremely conservative church, an extremely, extremely conservative denomination. Jamar Tisby, who hosts a podcast, several actually brilliant theologian and scholar, said this recently. A poll in 1970 said that 70% of SBC pastors supported abortion to protect the mental and physical health of the mother. Uh, 64% supported abortion in cases of fetal deformity. 71% supported abortion in cases of rape. Why does this matter? Why am I taking you through all this? When school desegregation no longer was effective in, a, in rallying white evangelicals, Republicans began to write, rally white evangelicals around the issue of abortion. This was a strategic move of the Republican Party. Again, it matters a lot. We should have opinions about this a lot. But what I'm trying to show you is that it is, was a strategic move on the, on the part of the party to combine us and the party together, to tie us together. You should have opinions about this. I hope you have opinions about this. I hope you're voting in that direction. I hope you care about these things. I hope you're talking about it. But I'm here to tell you tonight that you don't have to just align yourself automatically to a particular political party because... Of your faith. If you want to hear more about this, there's a great podcast called Pass the Mic. Jamar Tisby and uh, Tyler Burns, the host of that, I highly recommend it, particularly an episode called Abortion in the Black Community. Now, what is the current moment for politics in this church? I don't actually know because I don't know you all very well, but I can tell you if you're anything like my church, it's all across the board. There are, there are people in this room who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. There are people in this room who voted for Hillary Clinton. There are people who didn't vote at all. There are people who voted independent or voted libertarian. There are people who are pro-life. There are people who are pro-choice. There are people who have a particular leaning uh, one way or another when it comes to LGBTQ issues. There are people in this room who care about certain issues that the person sitting next to them doesn't care about or has the opposite opinion of. I want you to hear tonight that that is a beautiful thing. If that is in fact true, if the assumption that I'm making about all of you is true, that is great. And I hope that never, ever, ever changes for your church. It would be a really sad day to walk in here sometime and find out that all of you think the same. That would be boring, and nobody wants to be a part of that. I hope that there's always diversity in this room when it comes to political thought. That is something that I hope to see. 
it is important that we engage politics in a particular way. It's important that we think about these things, not just sort of blindly follow a particular party, but we think about these things from a Christian perspective. Philip Yancey said, in no other arena is the church at greater risk of losing its calling than in the public square. It's heavy, and it's important, and it matters. And I hope it's something we can talk a little bit about tonight. So here's what I want to do. I want to take two passages of Scripture, and I want to really quickly show how they inform and affect the way that we approach politics in our current political climate. I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 5. The reason why I'm starting with Matthew chapter 5 is because I'm a pastor, and my primary job is to help you follow the way of Jesus. My primary job is to show you a little bit about how Jesus would have approached these things, uh, maybe not in specificity, but at least in general, and then we can kind of decide how we're going to live as a result. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, and it goes all the way through Matthew chapter 7. It's worth reading like on a regular basis. It's his seminal teaching. It represents so much of what he believed, so much of what he died for, so much of what we are about. But he begins with this preamble, and it's called the Beatitudes. It's, it's like an abstract for the rest of the sermon. It sort of describes the tone and the idea of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In short, what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes is all people, all the people who you think are cursed or insignificant or non-blessed or powerless or unimportant or weak or forgettable, these are the ones at the top of my list. All the ones that society has overlooked are shoved to the margins or don't hold any power or prestige or anything that you would think is important in our world. Those are the ones that I'm always thinking about. Those are the ones that are on my mind. And in doing so, with the Beatitudes, Jesus develops for us a lens, a worldview, a way to see the people around us, the relationships that we have, maybe the relationships that we should have that we don't. The Beatitudes are so often forgotten And if anything, they're a preamble to every one of the conversations that we could have with anybody when it comes to political issues. They're the preamble to any of our conversations with people at work. They're the preamble to anything that we would do with anybody of any significance. I was recently struck by this quote from my favorite satire author, Kurt Vonnegut. For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often, with tears in their eyes, they demand the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. The Beatitudes are our standard for interactions with other people. They are our standards for viewing people and understanding people. They are our starting line. This is the way that we are to approach the world, the people around us, and particular issues that affect the people around us. Vincent E. Bacote said, uh, ultimately, the central question is one about what it means to live out a public Christ-likeness that exhibits equal care for people as well as issues. People as well as issues. It starts with people. It's about people. It matters for the sake of people. Our paradigm for politics must become increasingly Christian, meaning we have to follow the way of Jesus in the way that we engage voting, the way that we engage other people on political discussions. The Beatitudes are our guide for that, our lens, the way that we start any of those things. The Beatitudes do two things for us. Lest we think that 
they help us know exactly how to vote. That's not at all what I mean. The first thing that they do is they can inform the way that we go about voting or the way that we go about caring about particular things because, again, they give us a lens or a paradigm. The second thing, and perhaps most importantly, they inform and govern the way that we interact on political issues and we engage political opponents and the way that we have conversations about political things. Think about the way that you engage somebody about a political issue, whether it's face-to-face or on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram or at the office or whatever it is. Were the Beatitudes on your mind while you had that conversation? Have you ever read the Beatitudes before going into a difficult conversation? This is where we start. The Beatitudes are our starting line. Um, A.J. Sherrill, uh, a pastor um, who, who preached at our church about a year ago, um, he's a pastor in uh, Michigan, he's, he tweeted this recently, Dear Evangelicals, a group with which I historically identify, we are not waiting for King Cyrus, we are waiting for King Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is our highest political ethic. I agree, A.J., I agree. It is our highest political ethic. It is where we begin, and it is the way that we govern our life. On to our second passage. I'm going to read uh, a couple verses for, in a minute from a, a book called uh, Jeremiah from chapter 29. And there's a particular verse that's really popular in there. It's not one of the ones I'm going to read. Um, at this point in time, the people of God are in exile, meaning they're in slavery. Um, uh, the, one of the reasons why the African-American church so, um, so resonates with the people of God throughout the Old Testament is because um, they both experienced slavery in a land that was not their own, lasting multiple generations, meaning... African-Americans and the people of God, the Jews, have ancestors whose entire lives were defined by ownership and slavery and labor and deportation. There's a lot of resonance there. These people receive a word from God through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what they are told, among other things. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Before that, he says, get married, till the soil, literally work the soil, the ground around you. That place is your place. You're in exile, absolutely, but I'm not asking you to rebel. I'm asking you to dig in. I'm not asking you to change everything. I'm asking you to comply and be a part of the system, be a part of the community that's there. Vincent E. Bacot again said, all politics are local, and all our political engagement should start at the local level. As your city prospers, so you will prosper. We are so obsessed, so opinionated, so enraged, so arrogant about our positions on how politics should play out on a national level. Almost all of us have some sort of opinion about how our national politics politics should function and what they should look like. And very few of us have any idea what's happening on a political level or even a state level with particular politicians. The irony of that is the things that happen in Washington, Washington, D.C., the events that take place, the decisions made, take forever to trickle down, sometimes years, to our environment. But on a Monday night in your town, there might be a city council meeting where a decision is made that might affect you the next day. The things that your city council is deciding will affect the sidewalks and the soil and the schools right in your backyard. It's a really important entity, and it gets so overlooked so often. Um, You might remember, um, I think it was about a year ago, um, when the world was up in arms about this particular judge. Everybody was upset one way or another. There were people who were either upset about the fact that this particular judge was being treated in a certain way, or they were upset about the thing that this judge allegedly did. Either way, there were very few people who didn't have an opinion about this particular judge. 
And yet, I don't know if you know this or not, but we don't actually have a say in who is appointed to the Supreme Court, right? So as opinionated as we were about Brett Kavanaugh, and, and as, uh, you know, whatever emotions rise up in you when you hear his name or hear something that he has written something on, we don't actually have a say in whether or not he's on the Supreme Court. Yes, we elect certain people who appoint and who nominate. I get that, absolutely. But in Inglewood, for instance, um, we actually get to elect our municipal judge. In fact, it's the only city in the state of Colorado and one of a few in the United States of America where the electorate elects the municipal judge. So like a year ago, the city of Inglewood elected Joe Jefferson to be the judge of Inglewood. I actually had a say in whether or not he got a seat. I, I got a say in whether or not Joe Jefferson became judge of Inglewood. Judge used to, or Joe used to be um, the mayor here. He was the city council representative for District 1. You're sitting in District 1 right now. He lives like a few blocks away, and his mom owns the Twin Dragon restaurant right over here on, uh, on Broadway. She immigrated here from China, and she started that restaurant. He's helped her run it for years, and he's now the municipal judge. He's my neighbor, okay? And I got to write his name on a ballot or check a box or whatever I did to say, yeah, that, I, I know that guy, and I think he's going to make a good judge. And I just got a parking ticket, and I'm going to go fight it, and I'm going to see him. You know what I mean? Like, there's interaction here. Like, I know, I know this guy. I know my neighbor. I know what he's up to. I know what he's like. And I had a say in appointing him to that position. My challenge to you on, in, in terms of how we would engage politics is to consider what it would be like for your opinions and your activity politically to be just as local as it is national. What if for every opinion you formed or everything you voted for or everything you tweeted or whatever about our national political scale, of which we have very little say in, right, if we're honest, what if you matched that or even one-upped it with something that had little, uh, local significance? Your opinions and activity on local politics need to be just as strong, if not stronger, than those of your opinions and activities on national politics. This is a big challenge. It's something that I'm having even a hard time with, and I'm pretty politically active in our community. But I think it's something that we could do together. In this election year, throughout the year of 2020, as we approach November, I think that if we focused our attention on some of the needs at the local level, we could make a real difference. We could sink our teeth in. We could till the soil. We could make this place our place, whatever it is that you call home. We could make it our place. Because so the peace and prosperity of your place goes, so your peace and prosperity goes. So here's my summarizing response to the questions that were submitted about politics. First, as followers of the way of Jesus, the Beatitudes are our guide for both the content and the execution of our political activity. Start there. Always start there. You're never going to go wrong starting with the Beatitudes. It will reorient your understanding towards people who need attention and who need care, It will reorient your understanding of what it means to leverage everything that you have for the sake of somebody else. Two, our political activity should be at least as local as it is national. The Beatitudes, Jeremiah 29, these aren't going to tell you how to vote, but they're good starting points. It's the beginning of the conversation, and my hope is that you'll have more conversations about these issues and these ideas among yourselves, with your home group, maybe with somebody who's sitting next to you tonight. May the ethics of Jesus guide you, and may, and may a more local focus for your political engagement help you find common ground with your neighbor. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, thanks for an opportunity um, to take a look at what your word says about how to engage other people and how to care for uh, the literal literal dirt that we stand on. I pray, God, that um, over, throughout the course of this year where we can get really bogged down and really myopic on a lot of issues and a lot of people and a lot of candidates that, frankly, we, um, we won't really ever interact with. I pray that you would turn our attention to the people who are governing all around us, whether it's school board or city council or city manager, or maybe it's just a neighborhood organizer. Would you just turn our attention to those people? And I pray that we would maintain the ethic of Jesus as we engage them, as we care for them, as we till the soil beneath our feet. We love you, and we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.